Section 2 of From a Swedish Homestead by Selma Lagerlöf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading Lars Rolander. Section 2. The Story of a Country House, Part 2. Munkhyttan, the home of Gunnar Hede, was situated in a poor parish in the forests of Vesterdalane. It was a large, thinly populated parish with which nature had dealt very stingily. There were stony forest-covered hills and many small lakes. The people could not possibly have earned a livelihood there had they not had the right to travel about the country as peddlers. But to make up for it, the whole of this poor district was full of old tales of how poor peasant lads and lasses had gone into the world with a pack of goods on their backs to return in gilded coaches with the boxes under the seats filled with money. One of the very best stories was about Hede's grandfather. He was the son of a poor musician and had grown up with his violin in his hand, and when he was seventeen years old he had gone out into the world with his pack on his back. But wherever he went his violin had helped him in his business. He had by turns gathered people together by his music and sold them silk handkerchiefs, combs and pins. All his trading had been brought about with music and merriment, and things had gone so well with him that he had at last been able to buy Munkhyttan with its mine and ironworks from the poverty-stricken baron who then owned the property. Then he became the squire, and the pretty daughter of the baron became his wife. From that time the old family, as they were always called, had thought of nothing else but beautifying the place. They removed the main building on to the beautiful island which lay on the edge of a small lake, round which lay their fields and their mines. The upper story had been added in their time, for they wanted to have plenty of room for their numerous guests, and they had also added the two large flights of steps outside. They had planted ornamental trees all over the fir-covered island. They had made small winding pathways in the stony soil, and on the most beautiful spots they had built small pavilions hanging like large birds' nests over the lake. The beautiful French roses that grew on the terrace, the Dutch furniture, the Italian violin, had all been brought to the house by them and it was they who had built the wall protecting the orchard from the north wind and the conservatory. The old family were merry, kind-hearted, old-fashioned people. The squire's wife certainly liked to be a little aristocratic, but that was not at all in the old squire's line. In the midst of all the luxury which surrounded him, he never forgot what he had been, and in the room where he transacted his business, and where people came and went, the pack and the red-painted homemade violin were hung right above the old man's desk. Even after his death the pack and the violin remained in the same place, and every time the old man's son and grandson saw them their hearts swelled with gratitude. It was these two poor implements that had created Munkhyttan, and Munkhyttan was the best thing in the world. Whatever the reason might be, and it was probably because it seemed natural to the place that one lived a good, genial life there, free from trouble, Hede's family clung to the place 
with greater love than was good for it and more especially gunnar hede was so strongly attached to it that people said that it was incorrect to say of him that he owned an estate on the contrary it was an old estate in vesterdalarna that owned gunnar hede if he had not made himself a slave of an old rambling manor-house and some acres of land and forest and some stunted apple-trees he would probably have continued his studies or better still gone abroad to study music which after all was no doubt his proper vocation in this world but when he returned from upsala and it became clear to him that they really would have to sell the estate if he could not soon earn a lot of money he decided upon giving up all his other plans and made up his mind to go out in the world as a peddler as his grandfather before him had done his mother and his fiancée besought him rather to sell the place than to sacrifice himself for it in this manner but he was not to be moved he put on peasant's attire bought goods and began to travel about the country as a peddler he thought that if he only traded a couple of years he could earn enough to pay the debt and save the estate and as far as the latter was concerned he was successful enough but he brought upon himself a terrible misfortune when he had walked about with his pack for a year or so he thought that he would try and earn a large sum of money at one stroke he went far north and bought a large flock of goats about a couple of hundred and he and a comrade intended to drive them down to a large fair in Värmland, where goats cost twice as much as in the north if he succeeded in selling all his goats he would do a very good business it was in the beginning of november and there had not yet been any snow when hede and his comrade set out with their goats the first day everything went well with them but the second day when they came to the great fifty-mile forest it began to snow much snow fell and it stormed and blew severely it was not long before it became difficult for the animals to make their way through the snow goats are certainly both plucky and hardy animals and the herd struggled on for a considerable time but the snowstorm lasted two days and two nights and it was terribly cold hede did all he could to save the animals but after the snow began to fall he could get them neither food nor water and when they had worked their way through deep snow for a whole day they became very footsore their feet hurt them and they would not go any longer the first goat that threw itself down by the roadside and would not get up again and follow the herd hede lifted on to his shoulder so as not to leave it behind but when another and again another lay down he could not carry them there was nothing to do but to look the other way and go on do you know what the fifty-mile forest is like not a farmhouse not a cottage mile after mile only forest tall stemmed fir trees with bark as hard as wood and high branches no young trees with soft bark and soft twigs that the animals could eat if there had been no snow they could have got through the forest in a couple of days now they could not get through it at all all the goats were left there 
and the men too nearly perished they did not meet a single human being the whole time no one helped them hede tried to throw the snow to one side so that the goats could eat the moss but the snow fell so thickly and the moss was frozen fast to the ground and how could he get food for two hundred animals in this way he bore it bravely until the goats began to moan the first day they were a lively rather noisy herd he had had hard work to make them all keep together and prevent them from butting each other to death but when they seemed to understand that they could not be saved their nature changed and they completely lost their courage they all began to bleat and moan not faintly and peevishly as goats usually do but loudly louder and louder as the danger increased and when hede heard their cries he felt quite desperate they were in the midst of the wild desolate forest there was no help whatever obtainable goat after goat dropped down by the roadside the snow gathered round them and covered them when hede looked back at this row of drifts by the wayside each hiding the body of an animal of which one could still see the projecting horns and the hoofs then his brain began to give way he rushed at the animals which allowed themselves to be covered by the snow swung his whip over them and hit them it was the only way to save them but they did not stir he took them by the horns and dragged them along they allowed themselves to be dragged but they did not move a foot themselves when he let go his hold of their horns they licked his hands as if beseeching him to help them as soon as he went up to them they licked his hands all this had such a strong effect upon hede that he felt he was on the point of going out of his mind it is not certain however that things would have gone so badly with him had he not after it was all over in the forest gone to see one whom he loved dearly it was not his mother but his sweetheart he thought himself that he had gone there because he ought to tell her at once that he had lost so much money that he would not be able to marry for many years but no doubt he went to see her solely to hear her say that she loved him quite as much in spite of his misfortunes he thought that she could drive away the memory of the fifty-mile forest she could perhaps have done this but she would not she was already displeased because hede went about with a pack and looked like a peasant she thought that for that reason alone it was difficult to love him as much as before now when he told her that he must still go on doing this for many years she said that she could no longer wait for him this last blow was too much for hede his mind gave way he did not grow quite mad however he retained so much of his senses that he could attend to his business he even did better than others for it amused people to make fun of him he was always welcome at the peasants houses people plagued and teased him but that was in a way good for him as he was so anxious to become rich and in the course of a few years he had earned enough 
to pay all his debts, and he could have lived free from worry on his estate. But this he did not understand. He went about half-witted and silly from farm to farm, and he had no longer any idea to what class of people he really belonged. Raglanda was the name of a parish in the north of East Värmland, near the borders of Dalarne, where the dean had a large house, but the pastor only a small and poor one. But poor as they were at the small parsonage, they had been charitable enough to adopt a poor girl. She was a little girl, Ingrid by name, and she had come to the parsonage when she was thirteen years old. The pastor had accidentally seen her at a fair, where she sat crying outside the tent of some acrobats. He had stopped and asked her why she was crying, and she had told him that her blind grandfather was dead, and that she had no relatives left. She now travelled with a couple of acrobats, and they were good to her, but she cried because she was so stupid that she could never learn to dance on the tightrope and help to earn any money. There was a sorrowful grace over the child which touched the pastor's heart. He said at once to himself that he could not allow such a little creature to go to the bad amongst these wandering tramps. He went into the tent where he saw Mr. and Mrs. Blomgren and offered to take the child home with him. The old acrobats began to weep and said that although the girl was entirely unfitted for the profession, they would so very much like to keep her but at the same time they thought she would be happier in a real home with people who lived in the same place all the year round, and therefore they were willing to give her up to the pastor if he would only promise them that she should be like one of his own children. This he had promised, and from that time the young girl had lived at the parsonage. She was a quiet, gentle child, full of love and tender care for those around her. At first her adopted parents loved her very dearly, but as she grew older she developed a strong inclination to lose herself in dreams and fancies. She lived in a world of visions, and in the middle of the day she could let her work fall and be lost in dreams. But the pastor's wife, who was a clever and hard-working woman, did not approve of this. She found fault with the young girl for being lazy and slow, and tormented her by her severity so that she became timid and unhappy. When she had completed her nineteenth year, she fell dangerously ill. They did not quite know what was the matter with her, for this happened long ago, when there was no doctor at Raglanda. But the girl was very ill. They soon saw she was so ill that she could not live. She herself did nothing but pray to God that he would take her away from this world. She would so like to die, she said. Then it seemed as if our Lord would try whether she was in earnest. One night she felt that she grew stiff and cold all over her body, and a heavy lethargy fell upon her. I think this must be death, she said to herself. But the strange thing was that she did not quite lose consciousness. She knew that she lay as if she were dead, knew that they wrapped her in her shroud and laid her in her coffin, but she felt no fear of being buried, although she was still alive. She had but one thought, 
that she was happy because she was about to die and leave this troublesome life. The only thing she was uneasy about was lest they should discover that she was not really dead and would not bury her. Life must have been very bitter to her, inasmuch as she felt no fear of death whatever. But no one discovered that she was living. She was conveyed to the church, carried to the churchyard, and lowered into the grave. The grave, however, was not filled in. She had been buried before the service on Sunday morning, as was the custom at Raglanda. The mourners had gone into church after the funeral, and the coffin was left in the open grave. But as soon as the service was over, they would come back and help the gravedigger to fill in the grave. The young girl knew everything that happened, but felt no fear. She had not been able to make the slightest movement to show that she was alive, even if she had wanted to. But even if she had been able to move, she would not have done so. The whole time she was happy because she was as good as dead. But on the other hand, one could hardly say that she was alive. She had neither the use of her mind nor of her senses. It was only that part of the soul which dreams dreams during the night that was still living within her. She could not even think enough to realize how terrible it would be for her to wake when the grave was filled in. She had no more power over her mind than has one who dreams. I would like to know, she thought, if there is anything in the whole wide world that could make me wish to live. As soon as that thought rushed through her, it seemed to her as if the lid of the coffin and the handkerchief which had been placed over her face became transparent, and she saw before her riches and beautiful raiment and lovely gardens with delicious fruits. No, I don't care for any of these things, she said, as she closed her eyes for their glories. When she again looked up, they had disappeared, but instead she saw quite distinctly a little angel of God sitting on the edge of the grave. Good morning, thou little angel of God, she said to him. Good morning, Ingrid, the angel said. Whilst thou art lying here doing nothing, I would like to speak a little with thee about days gone by. Ingrid heard distinctly every word the angel said, but his voice was not like anything she had ever heard before. It was more like a string instrument. It was not like singing, but like the tones of a violin or the clang of a harp. Ingrid, the angel said, Dost thou remember, whilst thy grandfather was still living, that thou once met a young student who went with thee from house to house, playing the whole day on thy grandfather's violin? The girl's face was lighted by a smile. Dost thou think I have forgotten this? she said. Ever since that time no day has passed when I have not thought of him. And no night when thou hast not dreamt of him? No, not a night when I have not dreamt of him. And thou wilt die, although thou rememberest him so well, said the angel. Then thou wilt never be able to see him again. When he said this, it was as if the dead girl felt all the happiness of love, 
but even that could not tempt her no no she said i am afraid to live i would rather die then the angel waved his hand and ingrid saw before her a wide waste of desert there were no trees and the desert was barren and dry and hot and extended in all directions without any limits in the sand there lay here and there objects which at the first glance looked like pieces of rock but when she examined them more closely she saw they were the immense living animals of fairy tales with huge claws and great jaws with sharp teeth they lay in the sand watching for prey and between these terrible animals the student came walking along he went quite fearlessly without suspecting that the figures around him were living but warn him do warn him ingrid said to the angel in unspeakable fear tell him that they are living and that he must take care i am not allowed to speak to him said the angel with his clear voice thou must thyself warn him the apparently dead girl felt with horror that she lay powerless and could not rush to save the student she made one futile effort after the other to raise herself but the impotence of death bound her but then at last at last she felt her heart begin to beat the blood rushed through her veins the stiffness of death was loosened in her body she arose and hastened towards him end of section two read by lars rolander